Welcome everyone to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and foster care. Do us a favor and let your friends know about this podcast. Most people find out about podcasts, well, actually podcasting in general, as well as this specific podcast through their friends and co-workers, family members. So do us a favor and let people know about this podcast. Today, we'll be talking about helping internationally adopted children develop a healthy cultural and racial identity with Dr. Holly McGinnis. She is an assistant professor at the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Social Work. Her research interest is in children's mental health with a specific focus on improving outcomes across the lifespan for children with histories of early childhood adversity, as well as child welfare involvement, both in the U.S. and globally. This research was informed by her post-MSW training in children's mental health at the Yale Child Study Center, as well as her work as the policy director at the Donaldson Adoption Institute, and she is the founder of a nonprofit organization for adult intercountry adoptees as well as their families, and that organization is also known as Inc. And she is an intercountry adoptee herself from South Korea. Dr. McGinnis, welcome and thank you for joining us today to talk about this really important issue for families and children and adults who have been adopted internationally. Thanks so much, John, for inviting me to be here. You know, I want to start with just asking why it's important. You know, why is cultural identification important for the emotional development of children adopted internationally? I mean, we hear the argument that they're adopted, they're Americans now. Shouldn't we just treat them that way? Mm. Great question, Don. I think what we often have a limiting view of the children just as children and not think about their long-term needs as they grow up. Because <laughs> that identity is something that develops along people's developmental trajectory. So one's identity is not so important to oneself well-being until adolescence. And adolescence is really when people begin to ask that question of who am I? In transracial adoption, who am I is very much dictated by our society and how we visibly appear. For example, I grew up in my Irish Catholic McGinnis family. The world outside of my family did not see me the same as I saw my white and blonde hair mom or my Irish looking dad or my friends for that matter who, who were white. So why is this important? It's really important because our societies don't see our children in the same way that we might see them. And so we need to prepare them for the world out there, but also prepare them to know who they are inside as well. And so particularly for transracial adoption, the racial ethnic identity is very obvious. But, you know, in my research at the Donaldson Adoption Institute, we asked adults who were white and adopted into white families about their ethnic identity. And I remember one person saying she grew up, she had Irish, reddish hair, She had assumed that she was Irish. And then she met her birth father and found out that he was Mexican. And so it totally altered her sense of her identity because obviously her father's, I guess, Mexican traits didn't come out, but she got to learn that that was part of who she was. So I think that sometimes we think, well, you know, especially if it's not transracial adoption, then maybe it's not going to be as important, but it is. Yeah, I loved what you said about how the, we see our children one way, but the reality is the world sees them different. And, you know, I, I use the 
analogy of an umbrella and I say, our children, when they are young, are really seen as part of our unit and under our umbrella. And even after a while, because we tend to run in the same, the same paths and the same circles, we become old news. So we really don't draw attention. We become less of a conspicuous family. But as soon as our children step out from our umbrella, the world is going to view them in, as an Asian American or an African American or a, a Haitian American or whatever it is. And if we don't help them understand what that identity is, it can be really hard for them. Mm-hmm. Yes, it can be a very rude awakening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At what age does that often, uh, our children often stepping away and, and being seen as individuals outside of the adopted child of their parents? So that's really interesting because I think it de- definitely varies by individual. But again, in the Beyond Culture Camp study that we had done, which looked at racial, ethnic, and adoption identity among adults who've been adopted, so that was a group of transracial, mostly Korean adoptees and same race white adoptees. What we found was that, you know, some people at three, four, and five, um, the racial identity and adoption identity was important to them. But on average, by the time kids enter middle school, their racial and adoption identity becomes very important. And what's really critical is, is that it continues to be important for the majority of adoptees in that particular study through college and through young adulthood. And what was interesting was that racial ethnic identities appeared to drop off for um, the transracial adoptees as they got older, but the questions or the importance of their adoptive identity continue to be really important into late adulthood. That's fascinating. So what you're making is a distinction between the fact, and in specific, if we're talking about inter-country adoptees. Yes they have potentially a racial identity that is different from their adoptive family. And they, they may well have a most likely a cultural identity that is different and perhaps an ethnic identity that is different. But you're also talking about their identity as an adoptee, which of course is not usually shared, or could be shared with their parents, but uh, if their parents were also adopted, but often is not. How does the distinction of, of the adoptee uh, identity play out? So I think it is something that is obviously interrelated with race and all those other aspects of identity, because those aspects of identity are all about belonging because of blood or biology. And so adoption is related because it's about kind of how are you related to someone who you don't share that blood and biology. So a lot of the adoption identity questions relates to adoption specifically around the biological family, and then how can you also be, you know, connected to your adoptive family as well. So often they co-occur. So people often who say they want to look for their biological family, they are also interested to know other aspects of their identity as well. Yeah, that's, I think that's really important to realize is that our children have a lot of different identities that they may need our help with as parents. Mm-hmm and understanding and and making a whole of all these different identities. Yeah. I like to use an analogy of a cake. So at the foundation of a cake is everyone's identity work in terms of uh, who are you because of your gender or your race or 
being a male or a female or sexual orientation. Those are all identity questions that all of us as human beings have. But as an adoptee, we have another layer on that identity cake, and that is the identity around being adopted. And then on top of that are the transracial adoptees who have a third layer, which is really the racial identity of how do I identify, even though culturally I'm raised as Irish Catholic, but visually I look Korean. And then for the international adoptees, there's another layer on that, which is that, that transnational aspect. How am I belonging to two cultures? So it's a, a deep cake. <laughs> a multi-layered cake. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So when researchers say that identity is more complicated for international transracially adopted people, it's really true. You want to say, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Tell me something I don't know. Yes. (laughs) What are some of the acculturation and assimilation issues that children adopted internationally face? Let's start with just talking about some of the assimilation issues that, that they might face due to their race or ethnicity. So in terms of when a child first enters into their adoptive family, there is amazing research that shows the life within the womb. And so even when we adopt our children at two months or three months, we have to remember that that child has been exposed to an environment for nine months in their birth mother's womb. And so that means whatever the birth mother was eating, smelling, tasting, that whole environment, it does enter into the baby's experiences. It's not conscious, of course. Yeah. So babies, even when they're adopted really young, they have already had an environment that's kind of pressing in on them. Obviously, when they're older, those environmental factors will come out in terms of behavior. So I'll just give an example. I was adopted when I was three and a half. And when I first came that summer, I wanted my sister, who was um, biological to my parents, to sleep with me. And so on the one hand, we could frame that as, you know, I, I just felt more comfortable with her. But if you understand Korean culture in which children don't sleep alone, they sleep typically with their mother or other people. And I was in an orphanage for a while, so I'm sure that I slept with other children. I had been used to a certain environment. So my desire to have somebody with me wasn't just because I was needy for that, but was that I had come from another environment in which that was the norm. Mm-hmm. And so to remember that our children behavior might be as much dictated by their personality as their environments were. I think as adoptees get older, for those who are able to adapt into their adoptive family, some of those cultural behaviors or expectations, you know, go away. But there are memories that sit in the body. And I think what was really profound was um, when I took a group of adoptees back to Korea, some of whom had been adopted at six and seven, you know, they ate some food and a flood of memories came back because they had had that before, but they had been not exposed to that taste for so long within their families. For myself personally, I remember when I went back at 24, feeling like I was walking in two bodies. One was this three and a half year old, Pa Young, and the other one was this 24 Holly McGinnis. And the 24 year old Holly McGinnis was saying, wow, this is also new. And a half-year-old Pai Young was saying, oh, this is familiar. And so those are really profound moments in which adoptees will encounter their culture that they might not even realize is like sitting somewhere in their sensory body. Yeah, and it's pre-memory, but it's still embedded. Yes, in the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how can parents walk what feels like a balance between wanting the child to 
fully assimilate to their new life while also wanting them to identify with their culture of birth? Well, I think there's a lot of things that adoptive parents can do. I think the the first thing is really mindset. I think we have a mindset that our children are just ours. And I think we need to have a broader mindset that our children are ours and they also bring in another family culture and, and nation. And so if we can open our hearts to embrace the entire child, then I think it can be a lot easier in terms of how that we can nurture all aspects of that child. I think for a lot of adoptees, and especially those who were raised in families in which they were really told to cut off all connection to their families of origin or country of origin, there is an awakening moment that happens. And for that adoptive person, that can happen at any age. But I think that when the adoptive parents don't normalize it when they're younger, it makes that kind of awakening that much more difficult. So for example, I always knew that I was adopted from Korea, but I grew up and I didn't have a lot of opportunities to be exposed to Korean culture and society. And so um, my first encounter was really when I went off to college and I decided I would try to join the Korean uh, Student Association. And I felt completely like a stranger in that environment. And that's why so much of the work and advocacy that I have been doing was saying like, that didn't have to be that way, that my parents could have provided exposure to my uh, ethnic community all along my growing up so that it didn't have to be this one big moment. And I think that that's really uh, my bottom line message is, is that that's just normalize it. You know, this is where you came from. This is the culture. If it can be day in, day out, that's the reality of your kid. Um, I often tell people I'm not Korean one day a year. I'm Korean every moment. And so if we only celebrate an aspect of our children's identity once a year, it really actually denies the day-to-day experience of which they're actually living. Yeah, and and we're going to circle back to talking about some specific ways that families can work on doing that more than the one day a year. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Let me remind everyone that this show is underwritten by the Jockey Being Family Foundation. They want all adoption agencies to know about uh, Jockey Being Family National Backpack Program. It provides newly adopted children with their own backpacks, personalized with their initials and filled with an adorable little plush bear and a blanket. Uh, But from my standpoint, the most important thing inside is a tote bag with parenting resources uh, for their parents. Uh, And these are resources to help them be the best parents they can be to this child. Uh, The backpack program is free to families and it's free to agencies. The agency does need to sign up. So if you're an agency rep listening to this, um, uh, pop over there yourself. If you're a family, let your agency know about this. Uh, You just go over to the jockeybeingfamily.com website, click on backpack. It's a super easy process to sign up. All right. I have to ask a question that that comes up not infrequently, and you seem uniquely situated to answer this, and that is, what is the experience like for a child whose name doesn't fit there the way they look? (laughs) And we should mention that you are a Korean woman with uh, the name of Holly McGinnis. Yes. So that can change as you develop and evolve. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So now that I'm in my 40s, 
some people will assume that I'm married to an Irish guy, which I'm not. And so actually, I often introduce myself to my classes saying that McGinnis is actually my name. So it's a really uh, important question, Don, because your name represents your identity. So for me, I spell my first name, H-O-L-L-E. And the reason why is because, actually, I have to give credit to my aunt and uncle who suggested that spelling to my parents because my Korean surname is Lee. And so in my first name, I have also a claim to my birth name. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I remember even being, you know, young and like, fourth and fifth grade, telling people with pride, like why my name was spelled the way that it was. Because again, it spoke to the truth. And the reality is that I am both a McGinnis and I'm also a Lee. And in many ways, I'm very much first most of McGinnis because as a McGinnis, more of my life than I ever did as a Lee. But for other adoptees, they, I think the ability to, to retain and hold on to some aspects of a name of which they are disconnected from, but yet still connected to, um, meaning their birth culture in some way, really varies depending on where they fall on their continuum of their identity. So for many of us, you know, in many ways, there's not that much you have to do to make us be part of your family. (laughs) As the day-to-day, the wiping the nose, the feeding us, that is um, what gives us our identity in our adoptive family. And I always tell adoptive parents, just as nothing can take away all of those minutes, hours, days, mm-hmm. you have impressed upon your child and that they are, that's as indelible as blood. So in some ways, it's going to happen just because you show up every day with your child. But it might not show up at all in a person's name. So I've met a lot of adoptees who as adults have decided to reclaim their adoptive uh, or their biological birth name. And it wasn't so much out of a rejection of their adoptive family, but it was a claiming what had been lost to them. So I think that it's very easy for adoptives to adoptive parents to think that a name change means that they no longer want to be part of a family. But really, for so many adoptees, it really comes out of reclaiming something that was lost to them. Mm-hmm. And just from the standpoint of when parents are considering uh, names for their internationally adopted children, do you know of research or just anecdotally thoughts on whether to choose a name that matches or that would fit with both cultures? Or on the other hand, there's an argument that you don't want to make a child artificially stand out here. So just thoughts on how to change. And then, and then there's always the compromise of, of choosing a first name that fits one culture and a, a middle name that fits another. I actually think that that compromise is probably should be the first choice. Um, there's a interesting research that has been done on uh, names and getting jobs. So the more ethnically sounding your name is, the less frequent you will get called back. So there is real research on the relationship or correlation between one's name and job opportunities. So that's why I think the first name and a middle name that retains the birth culture name is a great compromise because that still is part of one's legal name. So if they want to go by the middle name, like Hayam or something like that, mm-hmm. for me, 
the whole issue when my name came up again when I got married. So my husband is actually also an adoptee from South Korea and his last name is Hubby. And, you know, and I said, I don't like the sound of Holly Hubby. <laughs> it's hard to be a Holly McGinnis. And again, I was 34 by the time I got married. So I had done a lot as my name and I didn't want to, to change it. But it wasn't so much about my rejection of being like joining with him and stuff. And we actually even talked about just inventing an entirely new name just because we felt like we were a new unit and that sort of thing. So names are really powerful because they do really point to how we want to be seen in the world. Yeah, uh, that, that makes good sense to me. You know, we've talked about culture. One thing we haven't talked about is religion. Sometimes as adoptive parents, we don't know what religion our child whose birth family was or if our children are old enough, or what religion they may themselves have practiced. So what are some of the things to think about? We can make guesses, obviously, depending on where our children come from. But what are some things to think about when you're adopting a child and and you have good reason to believe that you are changing that child's religion? Or do you think parents even give much thought to that? Well, I don't know. But my impression would be that maybe parents don't think a lot about kind of the religious affiliation or connection um, their birth families might have had. I think it might vary by the country in which a child's adopted from. So I have a friend who uh, adopted from Ethiopia and she's Jewish and she was very cautious that she was uh, adopting children who were raised Christian and that she was not going to necessarily raise the child in that religion. But I think parents who are adopting maybe from Asia don't as much about what the birth religion was. And I think a lot depends on the age of the child. If you adopt a child who has an identity with the religion with which they were raised, that seems to change things. At least it would for me. I'm not sure what the recommendations are, but it seems to me that a child, it depends on if the child identifies with the religion. Yes, for sure. Yeah. All right. What are some of the long-term implications for a family that through the international adoption has now become, let's say, uh, let's start with multicultural, and then we're going to talk about multiracial. But let's start with multicultural. Uh, A family that's long-term implications for a family that's become multicultural through international adoption. And I guess I'd like to, to talk about kind of for the family unit, how that impacts them, but also for the family members, both the adoptive person, the siblings in that family, the parents, and even the grandparents? So I think it impacts the family to the extent that they want to be impacted by it. So obviously the adoptee is very impacted by it because they are now coming into their adoptive family's culture and environment. And you can think of each family as having a unique culture. But for example, if I can be raised in a family and identify as Irish Catholic, then why can't my Irish Catholic family identify and participate and enjoy and appreciate aspects of my culture as being Korean? And so I think that if love can be a two-way street, culture can also be a two-way street, and it's pretty easy, I think, and more comfortable and easy to appreciate different cultures. And that's easy to incorporate into a family as long as you're open for it. Okay, now let's talk about race, because that becomes a stickier wicket for a lot of families. Yes, it does. (laughs) Yeah, so let's talk about what are some of the implications for becoming a multiracial as well as multicultural family through international adoption? Yeah, well, we know from the research that 
kind of promoting a child's culture is much easier for white adoptive parents than preparing their child of color for racial bias. Uh, and I think that really has to do deal with the broader issues of race in America rather than specific and unique to adoptive families. I think what's specific and unique to adoptive families is, is that these kind of ways in which we've been enculturated and socialized to talk about race now is happening in the intimacy of our families. And so I think a lot of white adoptive parents don't feel prepared to have those conversations and might behave in ways that we call, there's a whole language around racial microaggressions, and one of which is invalidation. So your child comes home to you and there is possibly a racial motivated kind of um, bullying or something like that. And white parent is not comfortable to recognize that race might be a part of it and they'll deny that either it happened. And I saw this a lot more when 20 years ago, when we didn't have words like white privilege, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> experiences that of the majority, majority experience, but now we do. So there's, you know, wonderful piece by uh, picking the phone dark on unpacking the white knapsack and I can send that to you. You can share with your listeners to get us to understand that we are all uh, racialized beings, that if you're white, that is a color, (laughs) (laughs) that the more that you can be comfortable in your own skin, the more than that you are modeling for your child a space for them to be comfortable in their own. But if you're not comfortable in your skin as a white person, how can your child be comfortable in their skin as a non-white person? And that's difficult for sure, because when you're in a privileged or position, it's harder to see that as a privilege. Yeah. And that's something that parents can specifically do. I think another thing that adoptive parents in their eagerness to become parents and their eagerness to embrace their child and their child's culture and their child's race, don't think through how this impacts siblings in the family. So let's talk, and the other one that I think is often the other entity that's often overlooked, how it might impact extended family members. We think of our, that we are becoming a multiracial family or a bicultural family, but we don't realize, or we, or it's easy to forget that we're also forcing our extended family and the children who are already in the family to also become this. So let's talk a little, let's start with siblings then expand outward into extended family members, especially those that are kind of closer to the family unit, such as grandparents. Yeah. You know, there are some researchers that have looked at siblings and transracial adoption, namely white siblings. And for some of them, there's also a kind of racial awakening development that happens and they become kind of transracialized. For some, though, they don't. And I know and have heard of multiple stories in which the adoptee kind of the perpetrators of racism was a sibling. Oh, wow. Or it was an aunt or an uncle. And so, again, just because we become awakened and we are where it does not mean that siblings, children, aunts, uncles, grandparents are equally as aware. And so you might want to ask, you know, if an adoptee says, well, you know, and I'm saying this is when they're older, Adoptees will say, oh, I don't want to go to the family gathering because I don't want to be basically with people or a couple of individuals who still retain pretty racist views. 
And so that can cause, you know, some rift. But we have to recognize that just because you've adopted doesn't mean that the extended kinship network gets it. <laughs> no, and, and I will say that I think as at least to the extent of the children who are in your family, I think you have an obligation as as a parent to prepare all the children in your family for becoming a transracial family. The children who are already in the family will also be getting questions. Is that your sister? Or how come your sister doesn't look like you? Or they may hear uh, racial jokes or slurs. And I think that we have to initiate the discussion with all of our children and not just our child of color or our child who was adopted internationally and is a different culture, um, but through all of our children. Uh, What are some ideas that parents can use to do just that? Well, I always like learning opportunities. So there might be an incident in school. You know, I think that when we can have those conversations when they're not volatile or feeling very emotional, it's best to have those conversations in a, in a more controlled conversation way. Mm-hmm. So again, I think reading a book together, we have so many opportunities in the, throughout the year, like Black History Month in February, Asian American in May. And we take those opportunities to read something maybe as a family and talk about it. And I would go even further. I think that if you're adopting transracially. I I love children's literature and and I I just, I love the idea of books, but I think all of your children should have books where it's not necessarily even about race or adoption, but that the main character are children of different races, even if it's not the race of the child who is adopted, just diversity in general. And, And then of course, there should also be books about talking about race and and also about families that look different. And so all of those books should be read all the time, not, not in a month of the year. You know, you're, you're, as you say, I'm not Korean one day a year. You're, and nor are our children, nor is our family uh, multiracial only. So our, our children's libraries, as for, for Christmas, there are so many. We have a lot of books listed in our um, best of the best adoption books at the creatingafamily.org website, broken out by uh, type of adoption and age of the child. And then there are also books, just type in into any search engine, uh, books for four to eight-year-olds where with main, black main characters, you know, or Asian main characters or whatever. And just have those as part of your standard reading. They can be a conversation starter as well but it can also just be a way to normalize that uh, heroes and great characters uh, come in all colors. And then I think as kids get older, so by the time that they're in high school, for example, you can get into the more sticky situation around racism in American history. Mm -hmm. Going to the American Museum of American History up at the Smithsonian in D.C. was so powerful for me to see kind of how Asians were portrayed in the 30s or the 40s. And that's part of our heritage. And those are the tougher conversations. But when our kids are older, that's exactly what they are confronting. And they need to have words and language for it. And also, I just want to add on that it's really important also for you to think about who comes into your home and who is not in your home. So if the only person is your child, 
that's sending an implicit message around who's in the family and who's out. But if you have lots of different people of lots of different colors and races and ethnicities and religion, you're also sending a message about who gets to be in and who gets to be out. So often I've seen some white adoptive parents saying like, like their eyes are huge, like I have to become friends with the entire Hispanic, you know, community, Latino <laughs> uh, community. And it's really not that, but one or two that you bring in. The research does show that white adoptive parents who have one or two friends who either match the race of their child are more able to kind of instill cultural pride and uh, talk about those tough conversations that we all have. Just because you're a person of color doesn't make talking about racism any easier than if you're white. Yeah, and, and the other thing is that these people can become uh, mentors or role models for your child. And quite frankly, they may well be better able to answer some of your child's questions. Yeah. And perhaps answer them with you there too, so that you can be learning. How should I have handled this situation? Or, you know, when my child came and said that, you know, the kid during the, the heat of a soccer game said a racial slur, how would you have handled that? And so use your friends as a resource. Yeah. So we've talked some about instilling a healthy cultural identity. So how do we know if we've succeeded? What does a healthy, let's say cultural and racial identity look like for an internationally adopted child? Or not just a child, but let's say a, a child, an adolescent, and an adult. I think there's not one answer. And I think that's always the hardest for parents, right? You want to do the right thing. You want to mm-hmm. have the <laughs> You got it. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Check that box. Yep. I know all of that. So identity is a continuum. And I think when your children are young, all you can really do is provide opportunities for exposure. You don't wait for your child to say, oh, I want to go to Korean camp. No, you expose them to that kind of stuff because that is part of who they are. When they are 20 and 21 and they decide, you know, I don't want anything to do with Korea or... Uh, China or Guatemala or something, then that's their kid's choice. But you want to give them enough exposure so that they can make that choice at that age with some information behind them. So we often, um, in identity you know, theory, we call identity moratorium as if you've never questioned your identity at all. You just accept kind of the identity that was given to you by your family. That could be by politics or religion or any number at the points of identity. But it's really important for people to go through the process of questioning their identity because I often think that if you question it, then you can choose it again. So we don't have to be threatened if our adolescent suddenly says, mom, I'm not going to church anymore. That just means that they're creating some space so that they can maybe choose it or not. And so choice is really important for the development of a healthy identity. But if you never question, then it's not a chosen identity. So my the advice is, is that expose your children to all aspects of who they could potentially be, but particularly attend to who and what they are so that they can make uh, informed and authentic choices about who they want to identify. The fact is, is that in terms of our race, we don't have a lot of flexibility. We look the way that we look. So even though I identify as, you know, Irish Catholic, I don't wear that look on my face. And so I will always have to contend with my Asian features. And so we pretend that our children don't have what they racially look like, then we're really not preparing them to live in their own skin. 
you know, our research at the Donaldson Adoption Institute showed that it was really experiential things that made the most difference in terms of promoting um, ethnic and racial identity. So that means going, visiting the one's birth culture, going to a diverse schools or going and engaging with people who look uh, similar to the kind of birth culture. Those kind of experiential things are much more powerful than just like reading a book or something like that or having a doll. <laughs> yeah, getting your kid the, uh, the standard uh, Asian or Black baby doll or action figure hero or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me pause and remind people that this show is brought to you by the generous support of our partners. And our partners are agencies that believe in our mission, providing unbiased education and support, both pre and post adoption. Uh, One of our wonderful partners is Hopscotch Adoption. They are a Hague-accredited international adoption agency, placing children from Armenia, Bulgaria, Croatia, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, Ukraine, and they also have kinship adoption programs in many other countries. And we also have Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They can offer you just a home study only service uh, if that's what you need, but they also have full service infant adoption, international adoption, and a foster to adopt program. You can get more information about them at their website, vistadelmar.org. So, Dr. McGinnis, we are talking about uh, instilling and creating uh, healthy cultural and racial identities in, in internationally adopted kids. And we're coming to the part now where we're giving suggestions on what parents can do. Uh, and you've just said that experiential things that we can expose our young children to, or our children, uh, not just young, and that would include things, if you are fortunate to live in a near your agency or and can get back if you have an agency that has the summer camps. It could be an Ethiopian camp or a Guatemalan camp or Korean camp. So that's an idea. If you live in a city that has a population, a substantial population from the country where your child's from, you may also be able to find uh, Korean schools or, or Ethiopian classes or things such as that. Those would all, I would assume, all count as experiential? Yes, they would. Mm-hmm. And also visiting the birth country if one can do that. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, I'm going to hold off on that just a minute because I want to talk about homeland tours uh, for sure. I mean, it seems to me that, that sending your child off to a Korean camp or dropping them off um, at the uh, local Korean uh, church for Korean school on Saturday morning, that's not doing much instill cultural awareness in the family. But I can see how it absolutely would help the child. But what are some things that the family might be able to do? Well, I think the best camps and the best schools are ones in which the family are involved in. So there's the Colorado Heritage Camps, and all of those camps are family-based camps. So the whole family, including siblings, get to attend the camp and be equally as exposed to, you know, the culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that I would not recommend necessarily, um, you know, dropping your child off at that uh, Chinese school, but at least one other family member participating, because then 
again, you are sending a message that, oh, that culture is something that we're going to send you out for, but is not something that we're going to incorporate yeah. in the family. And again, it's that question of what are you sending your child out of the family to get? What are you doing as the whole family together? What are you bringing to the whole family together too? So I think that those can be kind of good, good guidelines. And also, I want to say that you don't have to expect yourself to be fluent and Amharic or like Chinese or something. These are difficult languages. But I'll tell you that the littlest efforts mean can mean so much. So just as a small example, um, when I was growing up, my mother, she didn't eat very adventuresomely at all. <laughs> and it meant so much to me that my dad liked kimchi because it was he was liking a part of, of who I was. And not to say that I felt rejected by my mom, but I felt that extra level of acceptance and trying that my dad had because he did appreciate it and showed his appreciation. So again, your child's not expecting you to be fluent in some language as a way of representing your appreciation of where they came from. But those small little acts, those small little acknowledgements of, of where you came from, I love as much as I love you. Yeah, that makes very good sense to me. And so let's talk now, let's move uh, to talk about homeland tours. And just to kind of uh, give people a, a definition, that is when a family that is uh, has been created through international adoption goes back to the country of their child's birth as a family and uh, with their child to explore. Now, sometimes they can do this on their own. Sometimes they can do it through tours and certain agencies have tours going back, uh, some don't. So it can be on an adoption agency tour or some other type of tour. Let's talk about that. First of all, what is the importance for a child to go back and how important do you think it is that they go back with their family versus on their own, you know, as part of a college program or post-college? So I actually think that it's not a versus. I think that there's huge value of the child going to their birth country with their family and going back when they're older and independent. So again, this is more anecdotal, but I know of adoptees who did go back to Korea or their birth country when they were younger. And then, you know, what they said was that like, okay, it was kind of familiar. It was something that they had experienced. And again, depending on the age of your child, they're going to get different things out of that experience. So for example, there is a general rule of thumb that adolescence is actually quite a difficult time for adoptees to go back. So if you are going to go back as a family, ideally do that before they hit 12 or 13, and then maybe wait till they're 17 or 18 until they're older. Because that adolescent time is really when children are developmentally and cognitively really understanding what they had to lose in order to become part of their family. And going to one's birth culture or country at that developmental age really makes that even more trying because it's a difficult thing to comprehend how someone could love you and, and let you go. And that's essentially the, the adoption paradox that all of us are trying to reconcile, that someone loved you so much they gave you away. You know, once a kid is older at 18 and 19 and they're starting to go off onto their own, I would say that adoptees have to go again without their family because they are different people. They are going to have to have a separate experience. But I think those adoptees who do that when they're in their early 
and all her time, 20s, 30s, who've had an experience that they got to share with their adoptive parents are in a better situation than those who've never had any experience before. Mm-hmm. And I would say going as a family, one would hope would also help the family understand that they are a transcultural international family. And so I think that there are some advantages, certainly to the child, to going with their family. But I would also say it seems to me there are advantages to the family itself, the family unit, to have experienced that. It's an incredible bonding experience. I um, was a social worker on the Ties program, which is an independent organization that does motherland trips all to every country is pretty much that a child could be adopted from. Of course, I dated to Korea and I did see families who really embraced it as a chance for everyone to be immersed in the culture and make connections and bonds, you know, beyond just the fact that they had a, a sibling or a daughter or a son adopted from the mm-hmm. country. I also saw problems where some adoptive parents' attitude was like, okay, you should be grateful because we're giving you this trip and now all of our problems should be over and done with. And this was a particular family I'm thinking of who had an adolescent boy. So it's not going to fix your problems, (laughs) but it will definitely give you all a shared experience in the same way that any kind of family trip would. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, um, I know of a family where the parents went to the the country where their child is from and and spoke badly about the country the entire time. Yes. You know, it's dirty, it's filthy. The people, you know, don't show much work ethic, you know, not like the good old US of A. And I I just thought, why go? Yeah. (laughs) So go with an attitude that you're looking for the good. You're going to see what you're looking for. And I will say that this family had never traveled out of the US. So I think they were struggling with a lot of cultural change. And, but you need to be prepared for that. You know, you do your own research, get yourself in order that so if you're going, that you're going to go. And perhaps, you know, this family went with a, a tour group, but uh, maybe they should have you know, <laughs> done a little more uh, traveling before they, I don't know. Yeah. I was very frustrated when I, I heard them talking so poorly about their child's birth country. Yeah, absolutely. And again, in that same way that you wouldn't think my dad liking kimchi or not would matter, but your child is picking up all of those subtle implicit messages that you're sending. And many of us, you know, as adoptees don't want to do anything to kind of rock the boat with our adoptive parents. Yeah, I know. You know, they will then internalize those implicit messages. Maybe not, you know, most of it is implicit. It's not intended, right? But yet that child will then internalize that, you know, where they came from is a bad, dirty place. Yeah. And exploring that aspect of who they are. And I guess my view is, is that we need to love our whole child and allow them the space to be authentically all of who they are. And all of who they are is that place that they came from. (laughs) Yeah. And so that's really standing in like loving your entire child, which is who they are because they are in your family, but who they had been in order to come into that family as well. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Well, it's beautifully said. Thank you so much, Dr. Holly McGinnis, for being with us today to talk about helping internationally adopted children develop a healthy cultural and racial identity. 
Let me remind everyone that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your adoption professional. Thank you all, and I will see you next week.